I got to go over to the White House and he would come in and they were talking to all of the political appointees from each of the agencies and I'd get to go see him there. And Oh gosh, he was like a rock star. He had so much charisma. It would be electric when he would walk in. It's still overwhelming when you get to meet the president. In a corporate world where all employees have great leaders with no egos that create fun cultures where people can do their best work, the employees and companies thrive while doing great things for the customers, themselves, and each other. Well, we know that rarely happens. I'm Jeff Palaccio. I have been a leader for over 40 years for every t-shirt-sized company, from small 16 employees to extra-large over 1 million. Please join me while I interview outstanding leaders that will share stories of great leadership and not so great. It will help you become a better leader while poking fun at all the crazy shit that happens in corporate America. Hi, I'm Joe Deshawn, and welcome to The Corporate Couch with Jeff Palaccio. Today, Jeff is interviewing Brad Douglas. Brad is a partner in PLX Corp., a consulting firm that works with boards, CEOs, and executive teams of both for-profit and non-profit organizations to help them solve problems and achieve their goals. Brad is a former CEO and a licensed attorney with a unique blend of both nonprofit and corporate executive leadership experience. Brad began his career in Washington, D.C., where he held roles as a lobbyist with deep expertise in federal appropriations, a U.S. Senate staffer on Capitol Hill, and as the director of the State of Missouri Office for the Governor of Missouri. He also worked for the White House at the U.S. Small Business Administration as a Deputy Administrator of Congressional and Legislative Affairs, eventually overseeing two-thirds of the agency's operations. Brad has served on and chaired numerous boards, including his role as Director and Chairman of the Community America Credit Union in Kansas City and as Chairman of Arts KC, Kansas City's Regional Arts Council. You can find out more about Brad by going to plxcorp.com and clicking on the Who We Are link. Now let's listen as Jeff talks to Brad. Good morning, Brad. Welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me, Jeff. Absolutely. As said in the uh, intro, Brad is a partner at uh, PlexCorp, a consulting firm that works with the board CEOs and executive teams of both not-for-profit and for-profit organizations to help solve their problems and achieve their goals. So, Brad, I like to start every podcast with some similar questions of my guests. So the first one is, so uh, we're, we're doing this via Zoom. What's the craziest uh, piece of attire that you've ever seen someone wear on one of your Zoom calls? <laughs> um, well, I'd have to say, you know, when we entered COVID, uh, I was CEO of Heartland Credit Union Association. and uh, we were always looking for ways to keep people feeling connected because we were working remotely. We're, we were a remote organization anyway. So uh, we had very creative staff and we would have lunch, brown bag lunches on Zoom where we could all hang out and talk and see each other. And some of those days there were themes and, you know, Halloween was always fun. Uh, you know, in those times, uh, 
trying to think of anything specific that I've seen, but uh, some of the Halloween costumes were were pretty original. I remember that much, and it could be pretty funny. There's people that would wear weird hats, so that's probably the craziest stuff I've seen on Zoom. I love that idea. To I think you know, really, everybody had a pivot during COVID, obviously, but what. I mean, I think the great leaders really realize, and I put you in that category, that you know it, it was it was hard for everyone, and, and and to make it more human, and to do things like you know dressing up for Halloween or St. Patty's Day during you know when you're having those Zoom calls, I, I think that's phenomenal. So no one uh, got up uh, to get some more coffee, and then you saw them in their underwear. <laughs> Nothing like that happened, I guess. No, no, not not so much with the people. That, I mean. Yeah. There were instances where you could see laundry baskets, you know, when people would people would yeah. uh, move out of the picture or whatever, you know, and I'm not going to say it wasn't me either. So, yeah. uh, no, it was fun I, when you're trying to build a great culture, allowing people to express some creativity and have some fun, I, I believe is incredibly important. You know, we, we work together. We know how to work hard when we work. But you have to let people get to know each other, tease each other, um, and 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 really enjoy one another. And so when people come to me with ideas about how they can make it more fun, I'm all in uh, if it's reasonable. So especially during scary times, you know, like when the pandemic first hit and nobody knew what was going on. And suddenly we, we go from all enjoying being with each other every day. Uh, to not getting to see each other except on this little screen on our computers. Anything that that they could come up with that was different, creative, um, and caused people to laugh and enjoy one another more, I felt helped perpetuate the culture that we were enjoying. One of my big things when I started to lead teams, I didn't understand why more leaders didn't do that. And, you know, fun is part of my personality. And, and, and humor is a big part of me, but I mean, like we're here long, long days, you know, together, let's make it fun. Like if you're not having yeah. fun, you know, and I would tell people when they, you know, whether it was a formal uh, performance review or just people wanted to ask me my opinion about, you know, where they wanted to do in their career. And I would tell them, look, I want you to enjoy yourself on being a part of this team it's up to me to build the great, you know, the best culture I can and a fun culture so you can do your best work, but it may not be for you, or you may want to move to a different discipline that I don't have under my leadership. So I think that's very important. Yeah, definitely. And and by the way, for the record, you are pretty funny at times. <laughs> so Brad, the, the other question I like to ask people is, uh, you know, since this is called the corporate couch. So growing up, and did you grow up in Kansas City? I did. Okay. I did. Uh, I was born in this area and uh, my dad was transferred out of the area for a couple of years when I was very, very small, but back before kindergarten and went all the way through the same school system, the Park Hill school system. I'm a Northlander. Okay. Excellent. Um, So what I I love to ask people is, so growing up, what did you want to be? Uh, president. President of the United States? I did. Wow. So I I just, you know, I thought that'd be pretty cool. Um, and, and it's funny because I didn't grow up in a political family. 
I knew nothing about politics. I mean, literally nothing about politics until I uh, would be 25 years old. So, uh, you know, I just thought I like to lead. Um, I liked to be seen as the leader when I was growing up. So I liked being first to answer questions in the class. I was that obnoxious kid that my, you know, if you're a Harry Potter fan, Hermione, that was yeah. Me. Oh yeah, absolutely. That was me. Oh, you know, wow. shooting my hand up. I wanted to be first. So yeah, I was pretty obnoxious for a long. And then then I realized that's not cool. So I would just I would just find other ways to not be quite as obnoxious in class and just try to to win at everything. So um, I ran for student council. I was always class president. You know, the whole bit, all the way through president of my fraternity. So so. Uh, yeah, I just thought that'd be cool because that's that's the ultimate leader. That's one of them that I remember. Yeah, the leader of yeah, I would say the leader of the free world is probably yeah. the ultimate leader. The other one, the other one was probably a uh, to, to play uh, baseball would have been great uh, in the major leagues. That would have been cool, but that dream was dashed fairly early on. <laughs> How so, long did you play competitive baseball? Um, I played till I was 14 or 15 and then, um, uh, needed to, to work, earn some money. Uh, my family was a, a great family, but very middle-class and my dad and mom instilled in us, uh, a great work ethic. But at 15 or 16, I started umpiring baseball. Uh, again, I like to be in control. So, uh, and, and actually began to really appreciate it. I mean, when you've got parents yelling at you and you're a 15 year old kid that's a good experience to kind of have to go through um to be under fire like that and and honestly became pretty good at it later on good enough that i was i was umpiring high level uh very competitive baseball games you know the, and among and, and back in that time and this is the you know late 70s mid 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 70s late 70s um some of the more competitive leagues yeah, interesting. I uh, we have a little bit of similarity there. I, uh, my brother uh, is older than I am. He was uh, official in our, our men's rec softball, an umpire in the in men's rec softball. So he brought me aboard because it was pretty good money. Yeah, uh, I was nineteen, but I tell you, it teaches you a lot about conflict, oh. um, yeah. management. And, you know, the and leadership. I mean, these were I grew up in a blue collar. Uh, uh-huh. you know, these guys get off work. You know, they're working construction or working for a utility company or or whatever. They go grab a couple beers before the six o'clock game. <laughs> and Great. And then, you know, <laughs> boozed up. Yeah. Yeah, we need to share some of those umpire stories, but I have a few, but it's not about me. It's about you. Um, (laughs) Well, interesting enough, then. So you go to William Jewell College up in Liberty. And by the way, by the way, Park Hill was a mecca for wrestling. My sports were, uh, I grew up on a lake, Lake Wacomas. I played baseball. I wrestled starting in middle school uh, and came from a wrestling family. Uh, I was the oldest of four brothers and my three younger brothers wrestled longer and were far more successful. Uh, and then swam. I was a pretty good swimmer. Um, because when you grow up on water, you, you learn how to do that. So yeah, those were my, those were my sports. And then, yeah. So I, sorry, I interrupted you. No. Oh, so you wrestled in uh, high school. I did. All if right. That, here's a, here's a revealing fact for you then. What, what, what weight class? <laughs> 98. Oh, yeah. Uh, 98 pounds and then 105. 
uh, in high school. And when I and then uh, my senior year, I, I started hitting a growing spurt. I graduated. I, I, I didn't wrestle at this weight, but uh, one I think I graduated. I weighed 125 pounds, 128 pounds, somewhere in there when I graduated high school. Oh, those were the days. <laughs> so then you so you go to William Jewell and you, you yeah. had this, you know, you know, I, I would say, you know, not most uh, kids growing up want to be president of the United States. There's some, obviously, but you had this political uh, bend to you, you know, student government, ran for offices, sounds like middle school, high school. But then you become a piano performance and communications major. So was there a, a, a obviously uh you had some kind of musical talent to be a piano performance, but so why, why the choice of that, those two majors versus, you know, political science? So that's a great question. Uh, so just FYI, from the time I was young, I was identified as somebody who had a special talent for music. Uh, and my parents recognized it uh, because my aunt, my aunt D uh, is still playing to this day. She's 87. Um, had this gift as well. And, and, um, so they, they got me with a great teacher by the time I was eight or nine and I took off. And so by the time I was in high school, I was put in college master classes and stuff like that and was playing in big competitions and, uh, classical pianist. And, and then, uh, so they helped me get a scholarship. I had, I had, I had some scholarships to be able to afford to get to go to Jewel. So that's why the piano performance. And I honestly assumed I was just going to continue to do that and get a master's in performance when I left Jewel all the way up to my senior year. The communications came from what happens if I decide not to. I had started actually as political science because I, I was remember I wanted to be president and I thought I better learn something. But uh, the 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 guy that was teaching those classes at Jewel left after my first semester. And there, there really wasn't much of a department after that. And 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 now they have one. They have a they have a, a terrific guy up there. Uh, Gary Armstrong, but I decided to switch into communications because I liked speaking in front of audiences and I'd done it in high school and I, I, I was president of my high school. So I'd gotten to speak in front of assemblies and realized, Hey, I, I kind of enjoy this. So I thought, you know, communications can translate anywhere. You can use that. And I thought it'd be easy because, you know, me in college and, and post-college uh, I was always looking for the easy out. Everything was easy. Uh, grades were easy, all of that. So I, I just wanted to continue to have an easy time. Yeah, that's really uh, forward thinking as a you know high school uh, slash you know early college to pick communications because you're right, it just translates everywhere. And uh, you know, great leaders are great communicators. Well, we had some great communications professors at Jewel, and I liked a couple of them a lot. Uh, and and I just thought, you know, I'll, I'll just switch over from political science. And and uh, I was known as a piano performance major on campus, but uh, a lot of people didn't realize I was also getting enough hours to double in communication. So um, I enjoyed learning about I didn't debate in high school. Um, so I got to do that in college a little bit. And I, I don't know, I just I enjoyed it. I began to realize, hey, this is something that I might be able to do pretty well. And, you know. And, and let don't let me mislead you. I wasn't sitting there every day waking up thinking I'm going to be president one day. I had no clue who I was until my late 20s. Um, I, I, you know, if somebody said, what do you want to be when you grow up? I don't know, you know, president. Um, 
So, but I, I knew I liked to lead and, you know, that happened in the fraternity that happened in, um, it happened in, you know, student associations. It happened in law school. I was on the student bar association board, those types of things. So I liked being in the middle of decision-making and strategy. And I didn't, I, I didn't know that's why I liked it at the time, but I liked being part of the, of the, the brain trust that got to decide what was going to happen. Interesting. So what, uh, four years of piano performance being a major in that discipline, you know, being musically talented and spending four years of college concentrating at, what were some of the lessons you learned and what was the carryover into your uh, business career of what you learned uh, being in that uh, discipline? Wow. That's a, that's not a question somebody's asked me before. There were, there were some great lessons. First of all, when you're playing a, a very, very difficult piece with a symphony uh, and you're the, you're the star, you're the, the guest artist, and you're out in front of the symphony on a piano playing a concerto, that's as bad as high pressure a cooker as you can be put in. Uh, you want to talk about nerve wracking. So being able to master your nervousness and and perform at a, in a way that you know you can when it's just you alone in the auditorium and you're practicing is uh, that is that uh, to this to this day I still get nervous when I play for people but being able to master that and relax and let it flow is is something that's pretty cool and you've got to be able to do that in business um, you know especially when you're the leader if you're the CEO. You have to, you can't let people see you sweat. You've got to be confident. You've got to be reasoned and calm. You can't yell and scream and lose your, lose your shit. Um, or, or you're going to lose your people. So um, that, that was a huge one. Also discipline to play at the level that I was uh, and can probably still get to if I sit down and, and do it for, you know, two to six months and really go after it. Um, you have to do it day after day after day and come back to it. And, and instead of just, you know, going through a, a passage in a piece, in a musical piece and making a couple of mistakes and going, ah, you know, and just keep going. You can't do that. If you want to be the best, you have to stop and you have to drill it, drill it, drill it until you get, until your hands have it right. Until your mind has it right. So, um, those were great. Those were great lessons. And, and I, you know, as a kid, I just hated practicing. All my friends got to go play after school. I, my family, the rule was you come home, you do your homework, and then you will practice and then you can go out and play. And I just fought that, you know, I was just the typical kid. It's like, you know, so I would ram through all my technique work and stuff. And I'd try to get done in 15 or 20 minutes. And my parents would say, no, that's not, you know, that's not real practicing. My dad would sit down with me. I, I was very blessed to have parents that were very involved and, and caring. Uh, so um, it wasn't until I was probably in high school that, I, that I, and doing a lot of different activities at once that I realized you have to have some discipline if you're going to stay at the top and, and do this. So um, discipline and, and mastering your nerves, decision-making, um, connecting with an audience is the other one. When you're playing music, 
you're not just connecting and doing it just for yourself. You're doing it hopefully in a way that people can connect to and appreciate while you're doing it. You know, to realize discipline is so important at a young age. I mean, that's uh, phenomenal. You, you realize that in high school. And most people don't even realize that into their 20s and 30s, 40s and above. Um, great book on that. I don't know if you're a fan of Ryan Holiday's. I'm a big fan of his. His latest book is uh, Discipline is Destiny. It's, it's, it's phenomenal. So. So then you graduate William Jewell. And uh, at what point did you decide to uh, get your law degree? So, you know, me in my early 20s, I was a typical male. My brain wasn't fully formed yet. I was pretty immature. Um, I just my senior year, probably halfway through my senior year, I started realizing I don't want to work at this. If I'm going to go do this at the next level, I don't want to do this six to eight hours a day. And it just didn't feel I had that kind of discipline and I didn't want to turn it into my job. Um, and so I, I started looking around thinking, well, what would I do if I didn't do this? Um, and I thought, well, I'll go to law school because that's me at 20, 22 and 22 through about 27 or 28. I was just a typical deadhead 20, 20 something male. And it's like, I'll just, I know I'll go to law school. So, so um, I had the grades. Again, school was easy. So I just applied at the last minute just to see what would happen to three schools, KU, UMKC, and MU. Got, in, got into all three, took the, you know, the LSAT. And uh, typical me walked in at the last second, didn't prep for the LSAT or whatever. Uh, and it did, it did at least well enough. I could get in. I'm not going to say my LSAT score was at the top, but it was good enough to get into the, all three of those schools and, and chose Mizzou. Um, and you know, that was a big deal for me because I was walking away from something that I knew I was good at and that I could have probably made a career of, but I just like to do too many other different things. And I didn't want to get I, so when you're when you are an artist and you're at that level, it's all consuming if you want to be amongst the best. And everything I did, I always wanted to be the best. So I didn't want to become one dimensional. And I realized I liked chasing girls and I liked um, doing other stuff. I liked debate. I liked, um, you know, I liked movies. I liked going out and having fun with my friends. You can't do that. You're on the road. I, so when they would bring in artists for the William Jewell, William Jewell is known, is renowned for its concert artist series. The Harriman Fine Arts Series is what it's called. And I knew um, Dr. Harriman. And they would bring in these pianists that would play big concerts in Kansas City. To this day, that still goes on. It's still a, a, a leading fine arts program uh, across the country. And I had the privilege of my piano teacher, uh, who was only a few years older than me, he was like an older brother to me, um, would privately have me play for these guys when they when they would come in because he was a concert level. My teacher was a concert level pianist and knew some of these folks. And they told me I had the chops to go do it I, if I worked hard. But they said, do you want to be traveling 300 days a year? Um, you know, do you want to work at this eight to 10 hours a day? And I'm thinking. No. <laughs> so that's when the lights started to go on. It was like, again, I, I was all about what's easiest at that point in my life. And um, 
And I thought, you know, I don't, I don't know if I want to play piano eight to 10 hours a day and travel all that much and may always be obscure, never make it. You know, I, so I looked around and thought, well, what could I do? I know I'm good at school. I could go to a graduate school of some type. What graduate school would I go to? I'd go to law school because that seems to be, you know, if I ever wanted to, to lead people that are lawyers seem to have, you know, high positions. I know I'll go do that. And that's seriously about how much thought I had put into it. It was a place to land because I didn't know what I wanted to do if I wasn't doing piano. And so I chose Mizzou and off I went. And boy, you talk about learning some lessons in law school. <laughs> yeah. What were, what were some of those? Well, you have to study. You're, you know, when you go to law school, you're not, you're not compared to a bunch of people who aren't studying. <laughs> Good point. Uh, you know, a lot of those people are at the top of their classes too. And I thought I could just swing through and everything was going to be the same way it was. And the first semester when I got my grades, I thought, I thought I'd done really well on the finals and stuff. And uh, I was mediocre. And I was like, what the hell? There had, there had to have been a mistake. There's been a mistake. Who do I see about this mistake? I am not the middle of the class. I am at the top of the class. And no, I, I was not. And it wasn't until my, uh, so one of my buddies who ended up being the number one guy in the class, who was also a great sports guy. We hung out, we did rec sports. I continued to do sports clear up into my thirties. Um, he, he one day came to my apartment, grabbed me out of there and said, you're going with me. This is my third year. Uh, and he and I said, what? He said, you're going to, I'm going to show you how to actually study. And so he took me and he would sit with me and start ripping on me and just asking questions. And I was like, Hey, <laughs> but, but honestly it had a huge impact on me. I began to see again, if I wanted to be good at this, I was going to have to have discipline. It wasn't, you know, something I had a gift for, like the piano, where I just sit down and you could you could do it. You know, this was um, this was a different way of thinking in terms of the way my brain thought. And I'm going to have to sit down and really understand what all the issues are and see the whole picture, et cetera, et cetera. So it was it became it became a discipline thing. And by the by the end of law school, I was on I was on dean's list, but um, it took a while for me to, for the light to go on in my dim brain to, oh yeah, I'm going to have to uh, work at something if I want to be good at it. So um, great that, lesson. Was a, that was a great lesson. It really was. So you, uh, you graduate law school at Mizzou and then what are you thinking in terms of a career that was a, kind of your first career choice? So I, I did what everybody else did. I went into law. So first of all, I went into law school, not thinking I was going to come out and, and be an attorney. I just thought I want the law degree give me three more years, chase girls to, to go to a big campus to, you know, have some fun. And, um, but by the time I came out, I thought, well, of course I'll go to a law firm. So I, I started looking for jobs uh, and I actually got a job offer and accepted a job offer with a small firm here in Kansas city. Um, and uh, about that time, I, I, you know, so, so backing up a little bit, I was doing that because I thought that was what I was supposed to do. But my last semester of law school was when I really started thinking, I want to go to Washington, D.C. My dad worked in the government. He had some high positions and uh, I got to go on detail. He went on a six week detail when I was in my senior year of high school, I think, um, and it brought me out for three or four days out there. And I fell in love with Washington, D.C. And 
I just was, I just loved it. And then in my senior year of college, I also sang and I was on, in our uh, William Jewell's concert choir and I got to go to, uh, to, we did some concerts in Washington, D.C. And I got to go again and I thought, God, I still love this place. You know, I'd love to work on Capitol Hill and, I, you know, I'm going to go be a lawyer, but if I'm going to run for office because I want to be president or if by that point I'd switch to these senator guys seem to have a really great job, <laughs> you know, um, but I didn't know the difference between a Democrat and a Republican. So I, by halfway through my scene, my third year of law school, which is your final year, I thought I'm going to start going out there and seeing if I can find a job and work on Capitol Hill or some great job for a year to learn how politics is played. And then I'll come back and run for office when I'm a young attorney here in town. That was really, that really was the plan. So I, I had a, a, a girlfriend who had, uh, was was a year younger than me, and she took off to go to law school at GW, so I could go hang out with her in DC for a weekend, and or you know two or three days, and then uh, at the same time set up some networking meetings. So uh, I went out in February of my last semester, and had in three days I had sixteen meetings, and these were networking meetings, and I didn't understand what networking was. They were just me meeting people that my parents had set me up to meet, you know, just you start with whatever you can to get into. And then these people would refer me to other people. So I went back out in June and had 36 meetings. And in that June meeting, I did that in five days. So I was averaging seven meetings a day, one after another, after another. And, and out of that trip came, so I, I just graduated law school. I go out in June. I'm just trying desperately to find a job in DC and I got a job offer. Um, and, and so I called up the, the woman who was in charge of hiring me, uh, at the law firm, very small law firm, because uh, I wanted to get trial experience and called her up and said, Hey, I want to go do this for a year. And she just kind of laughed and said, okay, she said, well, call us when you get back. So I load up my car in August, said goodbye to my family and everybody I'd known, uh, and took off for Washington, DC and rolled in there. And I, I, I loved it. I settled in there for 12 years. So um, it, it was it was transformative. And I never went back to the law. I, I've always used the law uh, in every job. I mean, I can I can do a contract. I can I, I did legislative law. I did. I mean, all sorts of different things. And it, it benefited me in a ton of ways to have that law degree. But I've never actually practiced except when I was law clerking in between semesters, you know, when I, during law school. Wow. There's so many things you've just said that we can unpack. But the first thing is, uh, you know, the whole networking piece. So our uh, mutual friend, uh, Lana Mueller, wrote the networking book, you know, uh, Coffee, Lunch, Coffee. Um, and she has called you a master networker. But, you know, we're we're in the same uh, age demographic and really networking, you know, wasn't really a thing like so for you to set up 35 meetings when you're 25 26 years old you know five a day or seven a day for five days and even you know and that you know we'll see where that took you but that's phenomenal like how did you I, your parents helped you it seems but like what was your thought process at that time being that young um again i didn't know what i was doing i didn't understand 
I, I began to understand a little bit while I was in the middle of that second trip, because when you're doing that many, and a lot of the meetings for the second trip came out of the first trip, you know, so you know how to, you know, as well as in, as well as I do how to build a network. And I didn't know I was doing it, but I had a, a set of, what did I say, 15 or 16 meetings the first time. And uh, some of those folks, um, I got to go back and see. And those folks had, those people had, were kind enough to refer me into other people. So it's, you know, the matrix that you and I have talked about that you set up when you, uh, when you start building a network. Um, I, I, I just started building it. You build it like a pyramid. And um, I just knew I really wanted to be in Washington, D.C. and learn about politics. I just had just become enamored with that thought. And I was willing to go for it. So if I had not gotten anything out of that, I probably would have ended up starting at the law firm. Um, but I don't know what would have happened at that point. But I was uh, lucky enough that I got a job offer from a woman who became a mentor to me and um, was a lobbyist and, and still to this day, one of the best lobbyists I've ever come across. We'll get back to that uh, in terms of your that experience. But what I, the other thing I loved about what you said is, I think it's great advice for almost anyone, but especially a young person coming out of uh, undergrad or, or a master's, is that, you know, you knew what you wanted just generically. Like, I want, I love the vibe of Washington, D.C. And I, yeah. the, the poly, you know, and so you didn't have a plan per se, right? But what you did was, you felt the energy of DC while you were there. You knew there was something in DC that was for you. You took action on that in a broad sense by setting up the network, you know, the 35 networking meetings. And I just think, you know, and it led you to something. So let's let's talk about that. Where so you talk about this lobbyist, and that was the first job uh, that these yeah. networking meetings resulted yeah. in. Yeah. So so back to the point you just made, though. You know, when I was there, I, I, I realized it was going to be very difficult to get a job on the Hill. I was a lawyer and they didn't want to hire lawyers. They wanted to hire people right out of college that they didn't have to pay and that they could just churn through. I have a daughter who's just put in her fourth year on the Hill and she's just resigned from the Hill because it's it just wears on you after a while. And they churn through young staffers, but I was too qualified. So I, I had to broaden out from just standing there in the, you know, Senate office buildings and filling out applications and all of that, that wasn't getting me anywhere. But I thought if I really want to get here, maybe if, it was probably my dad or, or mom um, giving me the advice, just get there and then see what happens. And But you got to have a job to get there. So uh, fortunately, I got to meet with some people. I had one guy who asked me, have you talked to the trade associations yet? And it was the head, he was the head of the American Red Cross guy named Dick Schubert, uh, who later on in the first Bush administration uh, put together the Points of Light Foundation, which uh, George Bush Sr. was famous for. And he he was the one that asked me that question. And I was like, a trade associate? I don't know what those are. I mean, I was just so naive. And and uh, so anyway, um, it just broadened it out and I got lucky. Um, the woman, to, to your second question, the, 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 the woman that gave me a job offer. Her name was Lavera Leonard. Uh, she was in the National Association of Home Builders and they had a nonprofit arm and she was uh, lobbying um, 
for uh, for a bunch of contractors that they had um, that that gave them money. So uh, they the home builders were on job course centers. And I met her because my dad was very senior within the Job Corps program. That's where he worked in the government, helping disadvantaged youth on these Job Corps centers across the United States. And I mentioned I moved away from Kansas City when I was very young. We lived on a Job Corps center in a national forest in a trailer when I was four and five years old, when my dad started out as a counselor on a Job Corps center. So he had risen up and he was very high and he knew people and one of the contractors introduced me to Lavera. The home builders were teaching home building skills on job course centers. And so it was in their best interest, the home builders, to lobby and get appropriations for the job core program because job core was paying them a lot of money to teach these trades. Does that make sense? Yeah, interesting. Yeah. So, and I didn't know any of this was going on. It was just somebody my dad knew who sent me to this woman, you know, named uh, Lavera Leonard. So she took pity on me. And she offered me a job. And uh, so I was in the nonprofit arm of a massive trade association. It's a huge, it takes up a full city block to this day in Washington, D.C. It's just a, one of the larger trade associations in the country. And what, was the, what was the annual salary you started at? 26000 a year, baby. There you 26 go. 26 grand. I thought I was rich. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, yeah, tw- I still remember 26 grand and that wasn't easy to live on in Washington, D.C. No, I bet. So I formed my little budget and all that stuff. But anyway, um, it, it got me there and I was, you know, it was too expensive to take my car into work downtown every day. I had to live out in the suburbs and um, I found a guy from William Jewell that I knew at Jewell and he was looking for a roommate and uh, moved in and I was taking a bus to the Pentagon. And at the Pentagon, I would catch the Metro, go underground and then get into work and then walk three or four blocks to work. I mean, that's how I got into work and went home every day. Um, you know, how long did that commute take? Oh, uh, probably close to an hour in those days. Um, I, I had it timed and I could, and I walked pretty fast, but yeah, it was eight miles, but it was an hour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like he's got to wait for the bus and you got to wait for the train and all that stuff. So anyway, um, she taught me how to lobby um, and, and do it right. And she would make me take, uh, instead of, uh, in those days, you had bicycle messengers. And instead of um, having a bicycle messenger distribute these letters that we were sending to all the congressional offices on the Hill, she made me walk them to every office on the Hill. Um, that way, I knew where every tunnel was. I, I got I got pretty darn good at understanding how to get around on Capitol Hill. And that served me incredibly well to this day. Um, you know, in my in my previous job at HCUA, uh, I would take people on tours uh, on, you know, around underneath the, the tunnels of Capitol Hill. Our members, um, I ran a trade association uh, for all the credit unions in the Midwest and the members would come and they had never been a lot of them had never been to D.C. And I could show them around and give them the history because my first boss made sure I knew how to go do that and learned it the right way. Uh, it also was a great way for me to meet staffers and start building relationships, which is really um, what I've tried to teach our kids, what I teach young leaders in any organization that I'm leading. Being smart is table stakes. Knowing how to build relationships the appropriate way is what 
helps you move up in your life and and helps you advance and helps you achieve what you want to achieve because everything's about people. So she oh, made she taught me that. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, that I mean, that's she uh, was a great leader to to mentor you and kind of teach you the way. So that's, I'll, I'll that's tell you, she was one of the lessons I learned there was I started believing my own headlines. You know, my whole life up to this point, everything had been pretty easy. First couple of semesters of law school was hard. Then I figured, you know, start figuring that out. She would publicly talk about we've hired this fresh young talent. She would introduce me to all the people. You know, I got to go to all the receptions. I was in, meeting senators and congressmen, and and th- then I went into my first performance review, and she was she was brutal on me, <laughs> and I was just like, what, you know? Um, and it and I've told several people this, not not too many, but I had to make a decision at that point. I had never been, you know, she wasn't cruel or mean or yelling at me or anything. She just was really critiquing me the way I was handling myself in business. And I had to make a decision. Do I want to take that? Do I want to just be affronted by that and go work somewhere else? Now that I'm in DC, I can go network and find another job. Or do I want to learn from it and try to stay here and become better? And I chose B. And that's a great lesson um, because, you know, I was it just was, there's a lot of lessons sort of embedded in the way that she, she was, she was, she was a great mentor. She was hard on me. She had a huge impact on my life. I stayed with her for five and a half years. I worked for her um, in that first job and, and rose up. I mean, I rose up to director within five years, but um, really learned some great lessons. Your bosses have a big influence on on you throughout your career but especially in the beginning and to have a really great mentor that cares and will give you constructive feedback and is a i'll say you know has high expectations of performance (laughs) it's great and then and kudos to you for understanding that and not moving on because i think in today's generation of uh you know the the next generation of leaders that come out of college it's more like oh i i gotta you know th- this person's hard i'm gonna go to what's easy i mean you know because i mean that's we, our default brain that's what we want to go easy we want comfort yeah. but yeah uh, again the discipline to make that choice be to stay with that boss that just ripped you a new one <laughs> on a, your first well, performance in a nice was, way she was it, he yes, never yes. Yeah, so one of the lessons that I remember that she taught me was um, she hired a guy who was about the age I am now when he came into the organization and he was a peer of mine. And I, I don't remember how I knew it, but I found out that he was making more money than me. And I went marching into her office and said, hey, I've been here and I I'm good at my job. You've told me I'm good at my job and I need to earn more money. You need to pay me more. And why aren't you paying me when, you know, this is me at 27, 28 years old, still not really my brain fully formed yet. And, and she, she just very calmly said, would you like to apply for his job? I said, what? She said, you want to make what he's making apply for his job. I was like, huh? (laughs) Your job pays this. His job pays that. Yeah, but we're equals. Yes, in terms of how you report, but maybe not so much in terms of your experience, Brad. You've been in the workplace three years. This guy's been in the workplace 40 years. (laughs) (laughs) He knows what he's doing. 
So that was a great lesson. I, and I've, I've used that exact same conversation several times in my life when people have marched in and said, I deserve more money. You know, such and such is making more money than me. And I'll say, apply for their job. You want their job? Their job pays this. Do you have their experience? You know, it, it, it just was a great moment. Uh, I didn't know it at the time. I was pissed off because I wasn't making more money. <laughs> so anyway, it was, it was, she taught me a lot. Uh, and I, and I, I got to tell her that probably seven or eight years ago, she happened to be rolling through Kansas City and uh, reached out. And um, I, I took her to lunch and I told her about what a great impact she had had on me, uh, which which was fun, I, you know, being able to tell her that because she ended up owning her own lobbying firm and being incredibly successful. So then what was next in terms of your uh, D.C. experience? So you left that job. So I never had a, I never had lost my desire to go to Capitol Hill. Um, I was up there every day and I really wanted to work in a congressional office, whether the, I, I preferred, I began to see it. I, I would prefer the Senate because again, I thought those guys had great jobs. Um, and so I, after five years, I reached director level. I was ready to move on to something else. I, I, I wasn't, there wasn't room in the, in the, organization that I was in that where they were going to be adding any other VPs. And that would have been the, the obvious next level. And I wanted to work on the Hill. And by this point, I'd met Barb. Um, and um, I think I was, I think I'd just gotten married. Uh, so I'm now about 30 years old, 25 to 30. I was with the home builders. And um, she, so I had double income. I mean, we had her income and she was a senior executive uh, at the home builders. I met her there. And uh, was making a lot more money than me. And I thought, well, I can afford to go to Capitol Hill. Even if I take a pay cut, we can afford for me to go work at Capitol Hill and get that experience, which I realized was key uh, to a lot of different things that I wanted to, you know, could have could have wanted to do. So I started networking on the Hill. I, I believe it or not, I made it into the finals. I was I, so I became an expert in appropriations and earmarks and earmarks, you know, getting money and getting them put in reports that got people money. Remember, I was getting money for the home builders. I was getting money for the Job Corps program to pay the home builders. That's what I was doing. And uh, so I I was up there a lot and I I started networking and started applying for jobs. And, I, and, and my boss knew it. She knew I wasn't gonna stay forever. And I got a job offer from the Republicans and I got a job offer from the Democrats. And when I first got to D.C., I had no idea what each party stood for. That's how little about politics I knew. I literally knew nothing. Uh, by now, I knew uh, I got I, I got a budget committee uh, staff position offered from the Republicans in the Senate. Uh, Pete Domenici from New Mexico was the was the chair of that committee, his his senior staffer, his chief of staff offered me a job. At the same time, Senator Paul Simon, a Democrat from Illinois, one of the last great statesmen of the Senate, offered me a job to be on his staff. And I had to declare. And because when you're a lobbyist, you don't declare what party you're you're part of. Um, I, I always have told people that worked on our teams, you know, lobbying, the greatest compliment you can ever receive is somebody doesn't understand what party you actually, your personal politics are because you're lobbying on behalf of your client or your organization or whatever, and you build relationships well enough that nobody knows, you know, because you deal with everybody the same. So, so I declared Democrat 
I had to come out, declared Democrat, and went with Paul Simon. And literally to this day, one of the top three funnest jobs I've ever had in my life. Getting to go to work on Capitol Hill every day was unbelievable. And I just loved every second of it and just had a ball. Um, and, and there was a great culture on his, on his staff. And uh, he was a very esteemed senator and had been there a while and um, was, was just a lot of, there was, it was just a lot of great things that happened. He was uh, also a great singer songwriter, right? Paul Simon. <laughs> Uh, yeah, you know, he actually in his office had a picture of him and Paul Simon, the singer, up. Uh, he got to meet him. And, were they about the same height? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Paul Paul was, uh, Senator Simon was, was uh, he was a little taller than singer Paul Simon, but not much. So was that, I mean, you were politically agnostic, uh, at least outwardly, because of your job being a lobbyist. Uh, did you pick uh, Senator Simon because of his you know, no. the reputation or what, what was oh. the, Why did you, why did you go to Paul uh, Simon, Senator Simon versus the Senator from New Mexico? It's a great question. By this point in my life, I'm 30 years old. I'm married. I realized that I felt that government has a role to play in people's lives. I think it's an important role. I don't. And at the time uh, back in the eighties under Reagan, the Republicans had begun saying less government is better. Less government is better. Uh, I didn't feel that way. I could see the good because I'd lobbied on behalf of the Job Corps program for several years where we were helping disadvantaged youths learn a trade, get placed in a job and be productive citizens in society. And every dollar put in the Job Corps resulted in a dollar fifty six being sent back to society um, in a long longitudinal study that they had done. They figured that out. And I thought they're it's cutting government isn't always sure there's there's excesses there's just like any corporation there's people who don't run their part of the government very well but overall i felt there was a role for that to play and secondly i felt that the democratic party likes to help people more than the republican party um at the time remember it was much more about fiscal stuff um, so everything with the Republicans was cut, cut, cut. We need to, you know, find, do um, cuts to all these programs. And I'm thinking, if it's a good program, don't cut it just to cut it, you know. So I just thought helping people and the, the government has a role to play. That's more of a fit for me. Uh, so I took the job with Paul and it was actually paying less than I would have made on the Republican side. But just just really enjoyed my short time there. I worked there for a year. And then I got approached uh, to by um, by the governor's office of Missouri, uh, Governor Carnahan, Mel Carnahan, who later died in a plane crash many years later. Uh, and so most people don't realize this, but a governor, the, there are 40 of the 50 states or so, maybe even a little bit more, have, have offices in Washington, D.C. in the Hall of States building, which is the same building C-SPAN is in. It's right up on, on Capitol Hill by Union Station. And those are the nexus between state government and federal government. And if you run that office, you're appointed by the governor. You're the governor's lobbyist and political person in Washington, D.C. You are his chief of staff in Washington, D.C., but you have a small staff and you are the lobbyists on behalf of the state government with the congressional delegations and the White House. 
so the executive branch and and anything that's Washington, those are plum jobs. And they approached me and said, we're looking for somebody from Missouri who has Hill experience. Can we talk to you? And I was like, sure. Um, and, you know, it paid a lot more than I was making on Capitol Hill. But that that isn't why I took it. I took it because those jobs are very visible. You get to have a lot of say in what's going on. And I liked Mel Carnahan. So I jumped over and um, uh, sadly left uh, Paul Simon and what I was doing there um, to to take the job off just off of, you know, literally I could throw a rock almost and hit the building I was working in from my new office with uh, the Hall of States. Uh, also, interestingly, the National Governors Association is in that building and you do all the work for the governor with, the, with that association. So again, I was sort of thrown back into the world of associations. Interesting. That's, yeah, it's incredible. So how long did you stay on that, uh, in that role? I was there, I was there a couple of years, um, but the, the, and the, by the way, Missouri and Can- Kansas has never had an office there in Missouri. Had, that office had been put in place by Republicans. But later on, uh, one of the things that just absolutely flabbergasted me is uh, when Roy Blunt came in and uh, when, when Blunt came in as governor of Missouri, the first thing he did was he closed that office and gave a contract uh, to, to lobby on behalf of the state to two of his buddies. And, you know, it's so not effective that, I mean, you have to, again, you have to build the relationships with all the other governor's offices. And while I was there, Mel Carnahan became chair of the Democratic governors. And so I found myself um, chairing a Monday morning meeting because he was the chair of the governors on the Democratic side with all the Democratic governor staffs. And again, almost every state had them there. So these were large meetings. And then Daschle's people from the Senate, he was the Senate majority leader, and Gephardt from the House, his staff would show up. And then the Clinton Clinton White House had started, the Clinton administration, and they would, they would send their intergovernmental affairs people over. And I got noticed by the Clinton people. I thought that'd be kind of cool to work for a White House. And they said, if you're ever interested, let us know. And after, uh, after a time, I thought, well, I may not get another chance like that. So I told them I was interested and um, ended up going to work for the Clinton White House for five years. And they put me at the SBA, and that's where I ended up at the SBA. Wow, fantastic. Did you ever uh, get to meet President Clinton? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Got to meet him a few times. Um, They took care of us. When I was with Governor Carnahan, he liked Governor Carnahan. And so when the governors would come into town for the National Governors Association, they would take care of the governors. The governors would go to these big, fancy dinners at the White House and the staff, you know, I was staffing the governor. They would let us sit in and listen to him do his radio address to the nation, you know, and sit there. And I got to go into the Oval Office. I've got pictures of myself in the Oval Office where uh, after the radio address, um, I got to go do that. I, I, I went to, because I was a political appointee in the administration, once I went to the SBA, I then got to go to a number of events uh, where Clinton was there and working the rope line and all that stuff. So yeah, I got to, I got to go over to the White House and he would come in and uh, talk to all of, you know, they were talking to all of the political appointees from each of the agencies and I'd get to go see him there. And yeah, oh gosh, he was like a rock star. He had so much charisma. It would be electric when he would walk in. 
Yeah, I heard he one of his, you know, wonderful uh, superpower traits was when he was talking to you one on one, you were the only person you thought you were the only person that he cared about, focused on like he is. Yeah. He, he was, it was magical. Supposedly. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was, you know, and at that age, uh, you know, one of my I'm in my by now I'm in my early to mid 30s. You know, I it, you're, it's still overwhelming when you get to meet the president. It's it's amazing. It's an amazing thing. And I thought, you know, and by now I'm a political warrior. I am working for the Clinton administration at the SBA. I'm a political appointee serving at the pleasure of the president. I don't know if you ever watched the West Wing, but, you know, I serve at the pleasure of the president, which means they can fire you for any reason they want. You know, they can just say, we no longer want you to be here and, and you're gone because you're a political appointee. So it's called a Schedule C. Anyway, it, it, it was pretty fun stuff. Uh, I'm, I'm sure. To... Did you get to meet uh, Monica Lewinsky? No, <laughs> I wasn't hanging out at the White House. I was over at the SBA. Uh, yeah, so I had to ask. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so then you. So at some point you come back to Kansas City. Was that after your um, uh, working in the Clinton administration for uh, yeah. SBA? Well, it was during. So I, I when I got to the SBA, I was the deputy for congressional and legislative affairs. So I was managing on behalf of my boss, who was the head of Congressional and Legislative Affairs for the agency, probably the second great boss I've ever had. Uh, not the second best. She may have been the best in some ways, but the second great, great boss. Um, and she and I just clicked and we we could finish each other's sentences. And I knew what she was out doing. And she was out solving problems in the agency and on Capitol Hill. And I was running the office with 15 staffers. So. Um, I, I, I was I was in that office. And then when Clinton got reelected, they brought in a woman to run the agency named Aida Alvarez. And my boss, we took him around on Capitol Hill. He goes off to be ambassador to England. So I knew the, the ambassador to England and we get him confirmed and off he goes and they bring in Aida Alvarez and we get her confirmed. I was one of three people that had to help get her confirmed and she got to know me. There was no expectation that I was going to get to stay at the SBA. Uh, but she called me in after we got her confirmed and, and and said, I want you to stay. I want you to be on my team. And by the way, I want to take you out of congressional legislative affairs because <gasps> by now I'm a political animal. And I'm thinking, what the hell? And put you in charge of operations for the agency of everything outside of Washington, D.C. It was called field operations. And it was two thirds of the agency because um, it just meant I wasn't running the loan programs for the SBA. I was running everybody who was implementing all of it. So I, I, when she called me in and I still remember that day, I kept saying, well, I don't know if I want to travel because I knew that was a big job and I did not want to travel by now. Barb and I had three babies at home, babies. Um, and I, I was enjoying being a new dad and those are high travel jobs, et cetera, et cetera. So I said, well, you know, I don't know if I, and she said, you're not hearing me. This is what I want you to do. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> but but was very fortunate in that job. I made some good decisions and um, took that job over, fixed all the stuff that she wanted to fix, did a couple of things that I thought needed to be done, hired a great deputy for that job who had took care of me uh, with the, the people in the field because she was trusted um, and uh, rolled through for the next two and a half, three years and, and we did really well. So I went from 15, a staff of 15 to 2,400 people I was in charge of. 
uh, responsible for. So, but at this point, I'm starting to get um, stressed that I'm getting home late at night or I'm on the road and my kids are in bed. And I realized I want to be a dad. And if I go back to Kansas City, I can be a dad. I can coach wrestling and baseball. I can have dinner with my kids. And uh, Barb, you know, was from D.C., daughter of a diplomat, and her whole family was in D.C. So I said, what would you think about moving to Kansas City? And she said, "Okay." And I was like, really? Um, So I knew the head uh, at the White House, the guy who was the chief counsel um, for small business. um, And it was separate from the SBA. Uh, He was in charge of the Office of Small Business Advocacy. And he walked by me in the hallway one day and said offhandedly, hey, my my Kansas City job just came open. Ha ha. And he kept walking. And I was like, so I I talked to Barb about it that night, went back to him the next day and said, hey, Jerry, were you kidding around with this? And he said, are you interested? And I said, yeah. And he goes, you're hired. And I was like, ha ha ha. He goes, no, you're hired. And he stood up and he was a huge guy and started to leave. The, I was like, hold on, time out. Is this real? He said, yeah. And I said, where are you going? He said, I'm going to go tell the head of the SBA, I'm putting you in Kansas City. And I was like, <laughs> I got to sell a house. I got to tell my, you know, and so four months later, uh, I, I found my successor in, in the field ops office and uh, I moved back to Kansas City uh, in February of 20, uh, February of 1999. So 24 years ago, coming up in a couple of weeks here and landed back here as the head of the region for small business issues for the White House. It was called the regional advocate and very political job, um, but it was just me. And But I was housed at the SBA's office here, to, uh, down the hall from the guy that used to report to me, who turned out to be quite corrupt. And oh, geez. <laughs> yeah, it was something else. And they eventually fired him after I'd been back for a few months. I, I just stayed away from him. Uh, but they called me up and said, we're firing him. Would you come back to the SBA and take over that job? And I, by now I've landed in Kansas City. My job is to network the business communities in four states. I was literally being paid to network and build relationships amongst, you know, and look out for the interests of small business owners, which I loved. And I said, I kind of like my new gig. And they're like, no, we need you to run this. This is the AIDA, the head of the SBA. Could you just do it till Clinton is done? And I said, uh, let me, if I can keep my current job, I think I can do both because I know the staff. I know, I know all the people. And so the White House signed off on it. And so I really had two jobs the last year of Clinton's presidency in, in the year 2000. Oh, wow. So fast forward, Bush Gore's coming up. And um, I didn't necessarily get to stay if Gore were to win. And so I started thinking about what I wanted to do. And uh, this company called Cerner that was just starting to explode was looking for the first lobbyist and I got connected to him and next thing I knew I was leaving right uh, right before the election in 2000 I jumped into Cerner and I became their first ever lobbyist so so just to wrap up because I don't want to be too boring about about the stuff I I end up being the first head of public affairs at Cerner did that for three and a half years got to fly on the plane with Cliff Neil the whole bit uh, so I've corporate background now doing government affairs and building government affairs, industry relations and community relations. So, again, back to the networking and the building relationships in Kansas so City. Is, and I, 
question there, Brad. So obviously you're still in the kind of the gov you know government and government affairs, but now you're in the private sector for the first time of your career. Uh -huh. What was the big difference at, oh, that you noticed? Huge difference. Uh, one is uh, it's all about the bottom line, you know, much more than it is in the government. It, it can be about policy and what's right. Whereas in the corporate world, uh, it's all about, you know, how can how can we uh, grow? How can we grow? So, uh, and it was just, it's Cerner, Cerner is a unique culture too. It was, it was booming. It was a lot of fun. It was very heady stuff. We had a great team at Cerner and um, it was just, just was, it was a great experience. Um, but eventually uh, Neil Patterson, the head of Cerner, blew up our little area and i had to start working with some other people that i didn't think were ethical or that were very that i respected and so i left uh and jumped into the nonprofit sector at the greater kansas city community foundation and uh was the senior vp of business development for them which meant finding ways to get people to give money to the foundation so i kind of began to go into business development at that point um, and again, building relationships around the metro area. I built I built some organizations for them. Uh, had I was there three and a half years. Now we're in the mid two thousands. Uh, and before then you, uh, before you go on into in terms of your career arc, um, with just Cerner, you know, you talk about the culture. You you seem to have loved it, the culture. But you know, I don't know what time frame it was. I I want to say it's about the time you worked there, maybe a little bit before. But you know, they came came out with you know it, a lot of people didn't like the culture it was kind of oh. a, you know slave, no, i was there slave, slave mentality I was, when no. i think it was neil patterson the ceo that his email got to the kansas yep. city star and it was like i was there i'm seeing people leave at <laughs> five o'clock and that's unacceptable basically <laughs> yeah so i was there and i was part of the swat team that had to take care of it and the fallout from it I actually was on vacation when the email came out. I saw it when I got back and I couldn't believe it. He sent an email that was blasting people for not working long hours and stuff. And it was against everything they were saying internally, you know, but he just, he would do this. He'd go on these rants and it went public. It, it, somebody got pissed off and, and made it public and it went around the world. It's taught, it was taught for a while in Harvard Business School. I don't know if it's still taught. Um, about the impact that an email from the CEO can have. Uh, the stock tanked. I mean, it was it was something. And he refused for a long time um, to, to apologize for it. He finally had to do it privately uh, to some investors. But uh, my, my, one of my closest friends, I worked uh, in, he worked in the office next to me, was the head of PR for Cerner. <laughs> he was in charge of the whole SWAT team. And he walks into my office and says, you're on this team. I'm like, what? <laughs> um, so yeah, it was, you, have, you talk about differences, you know, he had started that company. You can, you can, um, if you want to run a company that way, you can do that in the private sector. Um, we worked really hard when I was there uh, and I enjoyed it because I enjoyed what I was doing. So I didn't mind it that much. Um, and I still had enough freedom that I could be home for my kids. Uh, and coach and do all the things that I wanted to do. But when he blew up 
our group within Cerner, who all really had this great culture. Our, our leader was a guy who's now the COO for Sporting KC, a guy named Alan Dietrich. Uh, we had a great team. And when that got blown up, um, I, I was I was done. So um, jumped into the Community Foundation, started sitting on boards when I was at the Community Foundation. That's relevant um, a little bit later on. Uh, had a great experience there. Uh, met some of the biggest business leaders in the Kansas City region, uh, people that I normally wouldn't have access to. Some of the biggest donors, you know, think Julia, Irene Kaufman, uh, those types of people. So uh, got to do that for three and a half years. There was a change at the top there. Um, and I decided now it's time for me to make some real money. I'll go do something right. And I got promised equity in a small little firm. Uh, if I would come in and be head of sales. And so um, it was called Opus Communications. I got in there and realized within six months, there's never going to be equity here because the the entrepreneur who was running it had a great client and it was really holding the whole business up and he needed me to help diversify. And every time we would decide on the plan for how we were going to do that, I'd started executing it and build up our pipeline for sales pipeline and start selling, he would change his mind and want to go do something else. And I just thought that you can't do that. And about that time, I got recruited to come work for a firm called Alliance Benefit Group. I think I met you when I was at Alliance Benefit yes, Group. Yeah. I worked there for eight and a half years as the national head of sales. It's a 401k consulting firm. Today, it's called IntelliSense. Uh, and they do far more than just 401k. But um I, a friend of mine was one of the owners of the company and he, he approached me at a backyard barbecue and said, I want to talk to you. So I jumped out of Opus into Alliance Benefit Group and that allowed me to be with my kids. It allowed me to sit on boards. Uh, we, he, I, our, our kids knew each other, you know, the, the owner, Grant Aarons, and uh, I were friends. Um, so it, it, it was a good situation for me when my kids were in high school, uh, middle school and high school. And um, it also allowed me to build relationships the way I wanted to build them in Kansas City by sitting on boards and helping people and networking. And that's really when I started understanding um, networking at a different level it was was probably during those early days. Did that for a while. And then, um, I, as I mentioned, I started sitting on boards and sat on, uh, got asked to sit on a board of this little thing called a credit union. I did not know what a credit union was um, until I researched it and um, thought, I'll do this for a year. And uh, that that decision changed my life because that led to me being the CEO of the trade association. So I fully circled back, circle of life, back to trade associations and ended up heading up a trade association for all the credit unions across Kansas and Missouri. Uh, just a great job. First five and a half years of that job, just really loved it. Got to build the culture that I wanted. Got to work with great people. Uh, I I got to be, play on a national scale and do the things I like to do and lead. Um, and just had a ball. And um, that ended when uh, they decided to do a merger, um, and I wasn't going to be the surviving CEO. And it was uh, quite a change in my life uh, because that wasn't where we were going strategically. It was a small group that decided they wanted to do that and they succeeded. So um, I ended up trying to figure out what I want to do 
now that I'm no longer the CEO and I was approached by the founders of Plex, where I'm at today, and um, uh, said yes to them uh, back in June or July and started trying to build a build a consulting firm with them and for them and for me, probably in August. So I've been at this for about um, four or five months now. Yeah, That's my story. That's my story, and I'm sticking it. with it. Let's talk a little bit about Harlan um, Credit Union Association. Uh, became the CEO, so this is your first CEO role, yeah. Um, which is uh, phenomenal. I mean, I know you uh, managed the or led a team of two thousand plus in your uh, SBA days, but so talk. You know what? What was your biggest challenge at at Heartland? Well, the first challenge was it was a merger. This association was brand new and Kansas and Missouri were merging their trade associations that were separate from one another and two very different cultures with two very different memberships. And uh, I had to go in and I was an outsider. I was uh, one of 35 people they looked at for the CEO job. I was the only one from outside the industry. So I'm this unknown entity. So I'm walking in. Nobody knows me. And. I have to win the trust of some people that had been abused almost by, by previous leaders that were on staff and meld into a great culture, two very different cultures that, that both had worked for leaders that were really hard on them and gained their trust. And so it was a massive change for all the employees. We had 50 employees when I walked in and, and I'm some outside guy that had no credibility in the industry. I had one guy tell me uh, first time I met him, he said, quite frankly, I, you know, I called the head of your board and said, what the fuck are you doing hiring this guy? Hmm. Um, and that guy later on came to me and he had a couple of drinks, but he came to me and gave me a big bear hug. He's a big guy and said, OK, I'm bought it. I'm bought it. I see what I see what they saw, you know, so it, it I had to gain people's trust. And, and, and at the same time, the machinations of figuring out how are you going to run two separate organizations that have become one on paper? How are you going to really make it effective? So that was the first major. And, and, and I, I will say we made some good decisions. Um, one of the things I enjoy doing is figuring out who's talented and who's not and, and can, is the right fit. And we brought in some, brought in a couple of people from the outside, and some people had to leave, um, and and put together this great team and rock and rolled. It was fun. It was really fun. Uh, so, so that you know, you asked what the greatest challenge was. My greatest challenge at the end was I couldn't control my board because uh, they were elected, and had a couple of people on my board that wanted to go do something else and were not being straight. So that's that's difficult when you get into that associate uh, that those types of situations and uh, managing a board. Um, I've been on boards, I've chaired boards, I've managed boards, uh, but that was a that was a, a first for me um, to have uh, two or three people that that decided that they had their own agenda and not necessarily what was best for the organization. So uh, you made the change. So you're a W-2 employee for, let's just say, 30 plus years, whatever it was. And then, you know, uh, starting, you know, in the summer of uh, last year, you become an entrepreneur. You're doing your own consulting as part of the, the Plex Corp. 
Um, so what, what was the biggest aha for you after all those years of, you know, working for a company, uh, or working for the government? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, my greatest aha was I'd gotten spoiled. That's one of them. I'd had, I'd gotten to the point where I was pretty good at understanding where we're going and then being able to put teams in place and people in place and, and, and getting all, you know, when you're a CEO, you can't do anything by yourself and, and, and being able to do all that and have people take care of it and then holding them accountable and all that. Now I'm back to, it's just me. So I'm having to do my own calendaring. I'm going to, I have to do my own expenses, you know, and I have to do my, all that stuff. I have to hire a CPA, you know, I had to form a LLC. So I had never had to do that. And uh, so that, that's the administrative side. I think, I think there are three sides of being a consultant, three sort of buckets of being a consultant. And the first one is the administrative back office side, right? You're, you know, how do you administer your life and work? Because there's nobody else that's doing it really. Second, how do you sell? And I, I've had years of experience in business development. So that part of it is not surprising to me. What's surprising to me more than anything is how many other consultants don't know how to go do that. Um, and, and third is servicing clients. So how do you balance, how do you find balance in that? And I'm still trying to figure that out. I've been doing this four or five months and I'm trying to figure out how do I, what's the right balance? You know, what part of my day do I want to devote to business development? What part of my day to, and building relationships? What part of my day to servicing clients? How is that going to go? Should I do that by the week? And I've always thought I was pretty good at time management, but I'm, you know, and our friend Cynthia Curiosi is our mutual friend. You know, I had to go talk with, I had to go talk with her, but, you know, I'm beginning to look at it as, okay, maybe it's not a daily thing. Maybe it's a weekly thing, or maybe it's a monthly thing. And, you know, how do you chop up your time? Because your time is precious. Uh, you don't have a whole bunch of people doing it. You can't pull the levers and, and know that other people are going to be executing. Yeah, I love the three buckets you put it in because you know I I started to experience that also you know going from a W two to now you know doing my own consulting, and what I like about the three buckets, I mean obviously everybody knows about the you know prospecting, business development piece, you know as well as the client servicing, but my one of my big aha you know when it came after probably a year on my own is. Being a consultant, part of that job description is the admin shit. You know, yeah. it's like that is part of the job. Of course, you want to meet with clients and pitch yeah. why you're you can help them the most and yep. you know help their board governance or whatever it is. Uh, but you know, doing the expense report, learning constant contact, you know, yeah. what you know, whatever that is. That yeah. is part of your job. It's not all the glory, you know, uh, of uh, pitching a deal or securing a deal or whatever that, you know. Whatever yeah, that yeah. Or, or I like helping people. That's one of the things I'm enjoying about this so far. And if I can, if I feel I can help somebody and they hire me to help them, I'm all in. And uh, so that part of it, uh, you know, is what drives me. Um the administrative side, not my strength, not, not, you know, especially after not having to do it for the past six and a half or seven years, you know, uh, six and a half years, I didn't have to do it. And even before that, we had people at Alliance Benefit Group that could do stuff for me. So 
it, it's it's been an adjustment. And and then there's okay, you know, I could rent some office space somewhere, but I don't want to do that yet. So working from home, there's distractions. You know, I've got three dogs in my house right now. It's a miracle that they haven't started barking while we're talking. <laughs> it's all good. It's all good. <laughs> well, I think, you know, I, I think to wrap, uh, wrap it up, uh, well, I could talk to you all day. You've been uh, a great uh, guest. Well, we're not uh, going to get to talk all day. <laughs> <laughs> you want to end this? I, I thought I, we were just getting to the pearls of wisdom. I'm going to, uh, there will be some guests and you will be in that uh, group that I'm going to have on more than one. So, uh, oh, oh, this is like we're dating and you say, I'll give you a call and then I <laughs> never hear from you again. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, but I was going to say, I think we're both big fans of uh, Bob uh, Berg's book, The Go Giver, and I consider yeah. you one. And uh, yeah. I think that's, you know, selling is about helping people and add, adding yep. value to their lives yeah. uh, in, you know, in any way you can, whether that's selling your consulting services or just helping them connect with somebody else that can help them. So I think we're a yeah. big believer in that. And I want to thank you for coming on and, and thank you even more for uh, being a, a, a friend and a mentor. So thank you. Well, right back at you, Jeff. I, I appreciate you having me on. And uh, anytime you want to just fill space and have somebody yap at you for 90 minutes, you let me know. <laughs> Absolutely. I'll, I'll All right. There. Have Th a great day. Yeah, you too. Thanks. That was Brad Douglas, a master connector, a, a true go-giver in the Bob Berg sense of the word. Uh, incredible career in government in D.C., for a couple different White House administrations. But what I loved about it too, like he was a uh, performance uh, pianist in college and practicing eight, 10 hours a day. And it just shows you, you know, it, it's okay to quit things. Like he realized um, that he didn't want to um, practice 10 hours a day it was it, he just came to the realization like this is what my life is going to be like the rep you know the when i pursue this path and uh, i think he did mention he wanted to chase after uh, females but uh, um, i just thought it's okay to quit as long as you have a reason for it and it led him to some unbelievable things meeting the president of the united states and a long career in the corporate world uh, accumulating as the CEO of Heartland Credit Union Association. Joe, what was your take on the episode? Well, Jeff, obviously this is a little bit different one for me because I'm a, I'm a musician and a pianist myself. My uh, bachelor's degree was in piano and I, I taught band and choir for three years in public school. So it definitely uh, rang true for me, everything about him being a, a musician in the first part of the interview was amazing. Now, he and I took separate paths. He went on a uh, piano performance direction, and I went in piano and, and music education. Then when he got out of the music industry, he uh, went into politics, and I went into business and computer science. But it tells the mothers of the world, if you will, that... A well-rounded music education can be very important in the development of a child. Um, you, if you have a good, well-rounded music background, whether it's a bachelor's degree in music or not, doesn't matter. But if you've got that well-rounded musicality, if you will, 
you can take that a lot of different ways. Uh, what music does is it gives you the discipline. It gives you the problem-solving techniques. It gives you the character that you need to appreciate life and to solve business problems, frankly. And uh, so the, for that reason, I'm a strong proponent that every child from the age of about kindergarten to third grade, somewhere around there, whenever he's ready, should start on piano specifically. Get a good, well-rounded base of piano for about a year. And then after you take piano for a year, um, if they want to go, if they want to continue in piano, that's great. If they want to um, go on to some trumpet or some other instrument, that's fine too. Or if they want to leave piano behind and do soccer or golf or baseball or something, that's fine too. But give them that foundation. I don't know of anybody that has taken a year of piano in early elementary education and has regretted it. Give them that kind of foundation. And, and mothers, you don't know, but your child may grow up working for the president of the United States. I love it, Joe. Any episode that has uh, piano and politics, I think, is in your wheelhouse. That's uh, right up, right up my alley. Both of them. Um, based on uh, Brad's uh, episode, any uh, words of wisdom for the uh, audience? Yeah, uh, today I've got this quote from that great American statesman Benjamin Franklin, who once said, "Don't believe every quote that you read on the internet." Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Corporate Couch. If you enjoy the podcast, I would love for you to take two minutes out of your day to rate us five stars and write a review. Please join me next week to learn from another great leader sharing their professional journey and insights.